Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. So the Ramban asks the question, why is it that we're talking about leaving Egypt all the time and the miracles of leaving Egypt? And what he says is something really amazing. He says, when you think about the big miracles that God did in terms of taking us out of Egypt, what's going to happen is you're going to remember all the hidden miracles that take place in your own life. I'll say that again. When you think about all of the big miracles that God did when he took us out of Egypt, you're going to come to think of all of the hidden miracles that God is doing in our lives every single moment. He then says something which, to me, is one of the most shocking things I've ever read in my life. And again, this is coming from one of our absolute 100% most authoritative Torah commentators ever from a thousand years ago. He says that any person who doesn't realize that every single event in their life is a miracle has no share in the portion of Moshe. Can you imagine that every single thing that happens is miraculous? Whatever is happening in your life, it's a miracle. That we live with miracles, that miracles are the baseline reality. Now we've got different types of miracles. We've got the miracles that are happening every single moment, and then we have these revealed miracles like the splitting of the Red Sea. But that there are levels of miracles. But that the baseline of our life is constant, ongoing miracles. And in fact, if you think about it, the hidden miracles are even greater than the revealed miracles. What's the logic behind that? How is the fact that my heart is beating a bigger miracle than the splitting of the Red Sea? Because how many times did God split the Red Sea? (laughs) Once. How many times does my heart beat? (laughs) Tens of millions? You know, it's so mind-expanding when you think that we're swimming in miracles. We're swimming in miracles. See, this is another level of of a teaching that I've shared with you, which is that breishis baralukim, that out of beginnings God created the universe, that every single moment is a new beginning because the fabric of the universe is created out of beginnings. This is a very similar thought that every single moment is a miracle because every single moment is a brand new beginning and a brand new opening for something else. We're never stuck. We're never stuck. We're never stuck. So what happens? Our eyes get clouded over and our heart gets locked. 
And then we don't see it. And then not only does the everyday seem not miraculous, the everyday seems like a prison holding us in. But you know what? A person's got to just chip away all the orla on their hearts, all the orla on our eyes, all these incrustations and unholy veils that stop us from seeing and stop us from feeling. And the way that we do it is by being outwardly directed instead of, instead of being inwardly directed. By doing something for someone else. Like the Pia Cessna Rebbe says, the greatest thing a person can do in the world, the biggest mitzvah, is to do someone else a favor. You do someone else a favor, and then you leave the prison of your own selfhood. You exit yourself. And once you exit yourself, you know what you enter into? The openings that are all around you. So there's something about this plague of locusts that the Parsha begins with, where it says that this is going to be a sign not just to the Egyptians, but a sign to the Jews and that the Jews are going to believe. And so the implication, the art scroll Chumash points out, the implication is that on some level the Jews aren't believing. And then not only that, but it goes further because we've got a very amazing statement. We read it every day in the prayers when we talk about the, the song at the sea. We say that when the sea split, that we believed in Hashem and in Moshe. Well, again, that seems to imply that up until then we didn't believe. Now, you're going to tell me all these plagues happened, all these miracles happened, and we still didn't believe? Well, that's implied in the Parsha. So, so from this you see something very, very interesting, which is that there are levels of belief. And one thing that I had explained to me that I thought was really striking was, what does it mean that the Jews believed by the splitting of the sea? They believed in God, but up until then, they believed that God punishes the wicked. But does that mean that he saves me? Do you see how there are all sorts of nuances and, and levels within belief? You can believe in a God. You can even believe that God gave us the Torah, but that God is going to return my own tefillin to me? <laughs> That's, I don't know if I believe that much, right? You know, I, I just have to reshare a favorite joke. It's so deep, this joke. I'm sure you all know it. But the man who's driving around, and if you've ever had to look for a parking space in New York City, you can look for 45 minutes and still not find one. I've experienced that. It's so anxiety-making. Anyway, this person's late for a meeting. He's got to be on time for this meeting. He's in Midtown Manhattan. He's looking for a parking spot. 
he realizes he's not going to make it. He starts davening to God, please, God, I'll be a better husband. I'll be a better father. I'll keep kosher. I'll keep Shabbos. And then all of a sudden, in front of that building, a parking space opens, and he says, never mind, God, I just found a spot. <laughs> so to me, I want to know what went wrong with this guy. You can't tell me he's not religious. He's talking to God. Not only is he talking to God, he's, he's, he's alone. It's a, Rabbi Nachman would put this in the category of his votedus. He's talking to God. To, he's doing everything right. Not only that, but he's not just davening for giant things. He's davening for a parking space. He knows that God even controls parking spaces. And yet, when one opens up, he attributes it to himself and his own power, not to God. What went wrong? And we have to know the answer to this question because this is all of us. And so, what I want to suggest is, and this gets back to this idea of levels of belief. A person can believe in God, but that God is so involved in my life that he's even going to open up a parking space for me when I need it and I reach out to him. That it's not just that that parking space opened up, but that was God answering my prayer because God is listening to me and he controls absolutely everything. That's the place where we have to be. To believe that much more because that's where reality, actual reality, kicks in. That's the real stuff. That's the real stuff right there. And so, the reason, or one reason why that's so hard to get to for so many people is that, because I ask God for so many things and, and, and I don't see them. So that tells me God isn't listening. But I heard this in the name of Gedalia Fenster, something so direct, something so like a bullseye. He says, you know, whatever a person's going through, just keep the following in mind. God isn't doing it to you. He's doing it for you. God isn't doing it to you. He's doing it for you. And when you realize that all the unanswered prayers are being answered. It's just God says, I have something better for you right now. I have something better for you right now. And if you knew what I knew, this is what you'd want. And so I'm giving you the answer to your prayers, even though this isn't what you are asking for right now. Don't think any less that I'm not listening to you and that I'm not guarding you and protecting you. Because everything that you're going through right now, I'm not doing it to you, I'm doing it for you. And I think that that is the key to unlock the heart. And that's the key to unlock the eyes. And that's the way for us to be able to get that parking space and go, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, I know I made you a lot of promises, 
give me some time to keep them. <laughs> I don't know that I can keep them all today, but I'm going to try to make progress. And please, God, just give me strength so that I can draw closer and closer because you're showing me and revealing to me how much you love me. And I want to return the love tenfold, a thousandfold, a millionfold. I want to tell you a story. I know the people involved in this story, so, so it's 100% true. Someone was moving out of their apartment, and they had roommates, and one of the roommates put his tefillin in this box with a bunch of other stuff, and the box got thrown away. And this was on the Lower East Side in Manhattan, and okay, well, you know, what, what can you do? Anyway, the person was going to replace it, and... Whatever happened, they, they, they didn't replace it, and months went by, and that's kind of just what it was. And anyway, someone else was walking on the Upper East Side. Now, if you know Manhattan, if you know, if you know New York City, the distance between the Lower East Side and the Upper East Side is maybe five worlds. <laughs> it's, it, may, it may only be like, I don't know, 100 blocks, but it's just that a box should travel from the Lower East Side to the Upper East Side is in itself miraculous. Someone else um, was walking down the street and saw two drug addicts, Rahman al-Islam, you know, they should have a rafua, but they're standing with this box and this person sees a set of tefillin in this box and asks them if, he can buy them. And, you know, they didn't have any attachment to them. They were like, yeah, fine. So he gave them $25. This person bought the tefillin and there was a, a sitter, a, a prayer book in it, with this person's name in it. And the person who bought it went on Facebook, social media, looking for as, whoever they could find with this name and came up with a lot of people, messaged them all, and actually contacted the, the person who lost them and, and, and gave it back to them. And he said, the person who had their tefillin restored said, how can I pay you back? And he said back to him, pay it forward. So he resolved that he's gonna buy tefillin for someone else. And to me, this is, this is an amazing story um, for a lot of reasons, but kind of just to tell you how I'm processing it. You know, we do mitzvahs, we do all sorts of good things or try to do good things. And, you know, you, you wonder, does God care? Does, is God noticing? And boy, what, what a... <laughs> What an amazing answer to that question. Not only did this person get a pair of tefillin, he got his pair of tefillin back. You know, those of you who put on tefillin, you know, you, you develop a relationship with it. You put it on every single day. You put it over your heart. You put it between your eyes, over your brain. I mean, there's a very intimate kind of relationship that you develop with it. And if you, if you lose it, that's, that's, a, that's a personal loss. So the idea that here someone seemingly was not putting on tefillin for months and months, 
And, and God said, you know, here's your tefillin back. Not a pair of tefillin, <laughs> your tefillin. And I'm going to do it in the most miraculous way to show you that I actually care and I'm actually involved in your life and I actually run the world and this is actually meaningful. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful on so many levels. You know, sometimes, I don't know how often it happens, but sometimes you're touched by how much someone else is touched. Like, I'm touched by how much God was touched. That God, so to speak, so went out of his way, right? In order to give the tefillin back to this guy. So with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about tefillin. This Parsha that we just finished has the mitzvah of tefillin in it. So, so that's, that's kind of why I want to discuss it. But, but I noticed something else in terms of, in terms of the tefillin. So, so I want to just make this connection that kind of came to me and, and kind of blew my mind a little bit, which is in last week's Parsha and this week's Parsha with the tefillin, we've got the 10 plagues. And the way they're divided up in the, in the Parshas is last week we had seven, and this week we have the last three plagues, and then we get the mitzvah of tefillin. Okay, so, so very interesting. Seven and three. And then all of a sudden I realized, you know, I, I put on, there are different customs of how you put on tefillin. I put it on in the style of Chabad. And when you put it on with that nusach, with that, with that custom, you make on your forearm, I'm going to just give you a little visual demonstration here. Over your bicep, you make the letter Shin. You're actually going to spell out the name Shaddai, Shakai, on your body. Like you're spelling out the name of God on your body with your tefillin, which in itself is wild. But you make the letter Shin over your bicep. And then for your forearm, you put down seven, seven straps. And all of a sudden I realized, wow, we just finished reading about the 10 plagues. Last week we had seven, this week we have three, and then we get the mitzvah of tefillin. Isn't that amazing? In putting on tefillin, you've got the seven plagues, the, remem the remembrance of the seven plagues down below on your forearm, and the three on top, divided the same way. And tefillin itself, one of the things that it says is that because God took you out with a strong arm out of Egypt. So there's sort of like a recreation of the miracles of leaving Egypt that you're doing, that you're reenacting when you're putting on tefillin. But it's more than that. Because those 10 plagues correlate with the 10 spherot that God made the world out of. And in terms of the ordering of these divine energies, we, we break them up into two parts, the upper three and the lower seven, which means that when you're putting on tefillin, you are sort of like 
in your own small way, in our own small ways, we are sort of like replicating the creation of the universe. So, so Stewie Wax pointed it out to me many years ago, but so beautiful. The head to fill in has four different boxes. The one we put over our heart just has one box. And the explanation, I thought, was really just so kind of resonant that we all have many different thoughts, but we all share the same heart. And so, so that one box sits over our heart. And I'll just mention this is a little bit more Kabbalistic, a little, little more complicated, but hopefully you'll get the thought. The three straps sort of like combine with that one box over your heart, in this style of putting it on. Well, when you have those three straps, that actually correlates with your higher self, the higher part of your soul, which is the part of your soul where all of the souls of Israel all come together as one. So, to put it in a little more jargon, the Gimel Rishonos correlate with the Neshama. This is according to the Vilna Gon's understanding of the ordering of the soul. So that's, that's an, another amazing parallel. You, you see from this just how much is in each mitzvah. Like, and it gets revealed over the centuries and over the millennium, and it gets revealed over our individual lifetimes, just how many levels and layers there are in every one of these divine commands. It's amazing. You know, our tradition is that each mitzvah contains all 613 mitzvahs. So every mitzvah is a microcosm of all of the mitzvahs. So there's another 10. We did two 10s so far. We did the 10 plagues. We did the 10 sfirot. But there's also the 10 utterances that God spoke the world into creation with. And we also have the 10 commandments. And how do all of these 10s fit together? That's the question. Well, the Chedush Yerim, the first Ger Rebbe, gave a narrative which goes from the first 10 utterances of creation, how God spoke the world into existence, and then the 10 plagues, and then 10 commandments. How do those all tell one single story? Very interesting. Well, let's start with this idea that God spoke the world into existence. A very amazing idea because we do it as human beings all of the time. Remember, God has no physicality. So God doesn't have a mouth to speak the world into creation with. The sages, the Chachamim, just give us this bit of imagery so we have something to wrap our minds around. So the example that I always think of is, imagine you walk into a Starbucks and there's a homeless-looking person sitting in the corner of the place. And I whisper to you, do you see that person over there? He's a multi-multi-millionaire. Now, all of a sudden, one moment ago in your mind, that was a homeless person. Now he's an eccentric genius. <laughs> right? Now, how did that happen? 
with the words that I spoke, your perception changed, and now you are living in a new reality. Moments ago, you were living in a world where that was a homeless person, and now because of the worlds, and now because of the words that were spoken, you now inhabit a brand new world where that's an eccentric genius. So do you see how with words we create worlds? How the conversation that we have with each other changes how those people see the world? I'll give you a much less colorful kind of example. Imagine you're in a room full of people and you say to someone else, you see that person over there? That's a bad guy, you should avoid him. All right, so one moment ago, you were living in a world where that was a perfectly fine person. You didn't even have a second thought about that person. Now, I'm living in a world where I have to navigate around the room to make sure that I avoid that person. Right? Literally a different world that you're inhabiting. So this idea that God spoke the world into existence with ten utterances, now, the sages ask a very interesting question about that, which is, why, if nothing is hard for God, why didn't God just create the world with one utterance? Right? Per perfectly good question. And so I saw from Rabbi Hirsch a very, very interesting thing, that God created the world sort of like in steps so that, do, do you remember when you were in elementary school and you were doing math homework or you were taking a test or something like that and the teacher would always say, show your work, right? If you had just put down the right answer, like you wouldn't get credit for it. You had to show all the steps that you went through in order to arrive at the right answer. So what Shimshin Rafael Hirsch is telling us is that Hashem created the world in steps so that we could get a glimpse into the fabric of the universe. So that we could begin in our own limited way to get some idea of how the heavens and the earth were established. And that's why God did it in 10 steps, in 10 sayings, so that we could have a better chance at understanding this fabulously complex world. Whereas if God had done it in just one saying, we'd never even begin to have an access point where we could unpack it. So God creates the world with 10 utterances. And then what happens? Remember, we're, we're back into the narrative right now of the Chidush Rim, the Ger Rebbe, trying to get the connection, the flow, between the 10 utterances that God created the world with to the Ten Plagues, to the Ten Commandments. Well, over time, idol worship takes place. And idol worship sort of like encrusts reality, puts all these, spiritually speaking, clipot over all of existence, where all of a sudden, the oneness of God becomes very, very confusing where it's sort of like, well, you know something? If I want rain, I've got to pray to the clouds, right? And if I want sunshine, I've got to pray to the sun. The irony, the tragedy, 
of the idol worship mentality is, from their point of view, what could be more efficient? <laughs> like, go straight to the source. I want sun. Who should I talk to? The sun. Once you leave the truth of the oneness of God and the fact that God controls absolutely everything, and that that's the most direct source, you can fragment God into a thousand million billion different powers. And it's all falsehood. So this is what happened. The ten utterances that God created the world with from the most tangible levels of the physical reality of, of Earth, of Olamasiya, the dimension that we inhabit, all the way to the highest, highest dimensions of heaven, all of those became encrusted with this alien theology of idol worship. And so what God does with the ten plagues is he starts at the bottom. Remember, the Nile River was turned into blood. The Nile River was, was thought to be by the ancient Egyptians a god. And it would overflow and it would put all this nourishing silt onto their soil, which would fertilize their soil, and then the crops would grow. And they would pray to the Nile. Well, God says, okay, let's start there. <laughs> Plague number one, we are going to destroy the idea that the Nile is an independent power. And then God goes up from there. You know, I'll just tell you something about the plague of the frogs, just because I always think this is so fascinating. The plague of the frogs really, like, it was like a horror movie, like, like a horror, horror movie for the Egyptians. Why? Because they heard all this groaning, the groaning sounds of the frogs coming out of the Nile. And then the frogs themselves started coming out of the Nile. And are you ready for this? They thought that they were the reincarnated children, the souls of the reincarnated children that had been drowned by the Egyptians in the Nile itself. Is that a horrific bit of imagery? And now these souls, now reincarnated as frogs, were coming to get their revenge on the Egyptians. Is that a wild piece of imagery? So what happens over the course of the 10 plagues, culminating with the 10th, because that's all about the death of the firstborn or who controls life? Who controls human life? And remember, the, the amazing thing about that plague, or one of the amazing things, is that the firstborn is considered the firstborn in that plague of the father, right? Which means that in some households, multiple people died because the women, there was a lot of immorality in ancient Egypt, and the women were having children from different men, while, without the men necessarily knowing it. And so, so it was counted as the firstborn for each one of those men. Do you understand? So, like, secrets were being revealed at the same time. 
And like who exactly, like it, it was, it was more just that the, it was more than just the eldest in each house was taken. There were all sorts of miracles on top of miracles. So, but what we have here is, 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 is life. And life is the tenth. Life goes all the way up to the top. That's the highest. And so through the ten plagues, what God did was he sort of unjunked the cosmos. He sort of broke all the clipot that were surrounding all the ten spherot, all the ten utterances of creation going all the way up to the highest heavens and basically restored the concept, the reality of the oneness of God. So that is the narrative. And now we're going to go to the next step of the narrative, which is the giving of the Ten Commandments, right? Which contains the entirety of the Torah. So now that the universe has been sort of like stripped clean of any falsehood, now all of a sudden God is speaking to the world again, right? The whole world heard like the shofar blast and knew that the Torah was being given at Mount Sinai. Okay, it was given to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, but the whole world knew that this event was taking place. And God says, like God speaks these words, I am God, your God. Right? All of a sudden, God establishes this incredible personal relationship with everyone. And then God says something that the Torah commentators are explaining away for thousands of years now. See, because imagine, I heard Rabbi Adin Steinsholz say, Olive Shalom, for thousands of years, people spoke to God at Mount Sinai, God spoke back. Now imagine you're God and you're going to speak at Mount Sinai. How would you introduce yourself? Right? That's, that would be a great like icebreaker like at a dinner table, right? How would you introduce yourself if you were God speaking to humanity? So this is what God says. Remember, we had just gotten out of Egypt 50 days before. I'll tell you what I would have said. Here would be my answer. I would say, I, I'm the one who created the universe. That's what I would have said. So God didn't choose that. <laughs> what, did, what did God pick? God says, I'm God, your God, who took you out of Egypt. And sorry, I forgot the name of the person, the rabbi who said this, but it's, it's such a beautiful, meaningful answer. Why did God introduce himself in that way? Because seemingly that, that's less impressive. I mean, yeah, it's pretty impressive that God took us out of Egypt. There's no question about it. It's never been done before, and I, I don't want to undersell it, God forbid. But compared to the creation of time and space and the entirety of the universe and billions and billions of galaxies and planets and black holes and all the rest, why did God choose to introduce himself in this way? To say, I'm with you in your suffering and I'm with you in your pain and I'm with you in all of your personal trials. 
And I'm not just God who created something grand and walked away from creation. I'm God who's absolutely 10,000% involved in every aspect of creation and continue to be so. And I know who you are and I care about you and I don't want you to suffer. That's how God introduces himself. You know, someone was saying to me the, the other day, he, he said, you know, someone poured their heart out to me and I, 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 I don't, I was so overwhelmed. I, I don't know how to respond. I said, you know what, just, just be a friend. Just be a friend. I mean, what else can we be, right? Just be a friend. And I mean, the idea that Lahavdil, not to make, not to, I mean, God himself calls us his best friend. So, but the idea that he's introducing himself to us essentially as a friend is, is awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. And so, and so just to review from the Chedush Erim, that's the sequence. That's, that's sort of the narrative through these tens. The ten utterances of creation. God creates the universe. The ten plagues. God chips away at all the klipot, all the incrustations of idol worship that had clouded people's minds and he reveals that he's the only power in the world. And then the Ten Commandments, God reaches out to us and tells us we have a mission. And as Reb Shlomo put it so beautifully, when you keep the mitzvahs, you pray God's prayers and you dream God's dreams. That awesome? When we keep the mitzvahs, we dream God's dreams. Because God is still very much in the process of creating the world. So God has a dream, which is that initial vision that he had of perfection of the world. And the way that we're going to get to that place that God had in mind from the very start is by keeping the mitzvahs. And so we really are dreaming God's dreams when we keep the mitzvah. Because we're getting to that place that God dreamed of from the very outset, before he created the world. So we're all dreaming together, right? So the Ramban says something very strong. If you look throughout the Torah, we're talking about how God took us out of Egypt. And throughout the prayers, it just, God is just taking us out of Egypt, taking us out of Egypt. It, it, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. In fact, it's mentioned 50 times in the Torah that God took us out of Egypt. And you know, I, I noticed something. It's chapter 12 in Shmos, in the book of Exodus, verse 51. It happened on that very day, Hashem took the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt in their legions. I thought to myself, wow, there it is. Everything's been leading up to that one verse. 
And then I thought, what if I, what if I count the letters? Like, I wonder, I, because every letter is precise, and this is such an important verse in the Torah. And so I counted the letters, and you know how many letters there are in that verse? Fifty. <laughs> and how many mentions of taking us out of Egypt are there in the Torah? Fifty mentions. And the verse that says that God took us out, that verse has 50. And how many days after God took us out of Egypt does he give us the Torah? 50. <laughs> and why did God take us out of Egypt? In order to give us the Torah on the 50th day. Everything is utterly, utterly, utterly precise. One of the interesting things about the Pesach Seder, Seder means order. For a service called order, a Seder is pretty darn chaotic. <laughs> you're taking the matzahs off the table, you're bringing them back on the table, you're lifting up things, you're pointing to things. It's a festive meal, but you don't eat for the longest time. In the middle of Hallel, we take a break and we eat dinner. <laughs> there, there isn't an example like that in all of Judaism, that right in the middle of a single prayer, you take a break. There's a minig that we don't do today, but they used to do it a long time ago, which is at a certain point, everyone is supposed to lift the table up off the floor. The kid is stealing the matzah. You're hiding it. You're looking. You can't like continue with the meal until you find something that's been hidden. You could describe it as a lot of things, but order? I don't know if you could use the word order to describe a Pesach Seder. I don't know which one of the Rebbe's said it, but it's so good. They said, you know what? This actually is order. This actually is order. We don't understand how it's order, but it's order. And what's the real point? We look at our lives, and we look at this world, and we say, this is order? Yeah, this is order. We don't understand how it's order. But just like the Seder is order, even though it doesn't look like order, that's to teach us that our lives in this world are also in order, even though it doesn't look like it's in order. But God is 100% ready to Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.